Thank you very much, Jen. And uh, like Dr. Furman, I had humble beginnings. I was actually Dr. Furman's internal medicine intern at Cornell a few years ago. Uh, so it's actually uh, quite an honor that he and Dr. Coleman invited me today to uh, discuss my thoughts on venetoclax resistance. And these are my disclosures. So we've learned a lot in the last few years, thanks to many people in this room, about resistance to BTK inhibitors, particularly ibrutinib. Uh, but much less has been known about venetoclax resistance. And actually, had I been asked to give this talk a year ago, there wouldn't have been too much to talk about. Uh, but over the last year, I think we've learned a lot about venetoclax resistance. And I'm hoping to share some thoughts about both the mechanisms of resistance, as well as how we might approach treating patients who become resistant to venetoclax. So you've seen these curves already. We know that time-limited venetoclax therapy, uh, when given in combination with a CD20 antibody, is able to achieve durable remission for most CLL patients. But we definitely find patients who do not respond, they're primary refractory, uh, which is uncommon. Uh, but more commonly, we see patients beginning to relapse, particularly in the relapsed refractory population. And uh, we need to address that. But right now, we have very few patient samples and very few progression events. And so it's been difficult to discern resistance mechanisms in this group. So really, the efforts over the last year plus have focused on the group from the original studies, uh, for example, the phase one first in human study seen here. We know in that study that response rates to continuous venetoclax monotherapy were high across the board in, in relapsed refractory CLL, both in patients with or without TP53 dysfunction. Uh, we see uh, the waterfall plots look very good in terms of reduction of disease burden in all of the different compartments, in terms of absolute lymphocyte count, lymph node size, and bone marrow. And on the right side, we see that the depth of response does tend to predict the durability of that response. And so these were some recent data that Andrew Roberts put together based on the early phase venetoclax trials. And we see that patients who are able to achieve a complete remission on venetoclax monotherapy can enjoy very long progression-free survival. But patients who achieve a PR, uh, and certainly patients who have no response, have very short survival. MRD can also be useful in this respect. If you look at data stratified by the MRD status at two years of venetoclax monotherapy, there's also a statistically significant improvement in the PFS for those patients who obtain unmutated uh, or who obtain uh, undetectable MRD. So for those patients who are progressing or are primary refractory, what, what are the resistance mechanisms to venetoclax? So I think it's important to think about two different patient populations here, because the, the clinical patterns of resistance to venetoclax do vary depending on the timing of when that resistance develops. So for example, in this curve of, of non-responsive patients, these are what we would call early progressors. And we saw this early on in the experience with the phase one venetoclax monotherapy study. And we saw patients who developed Richter's transformation. Sometimes this occurred even within a few weeks or months of patients coming on study. So in some cases, this may have been pre-existing Richter's condition prior to starting venetoclax. In other cases, it may have developed shortly after starting on therapy. We've also seen cases of patients developing highly proliferative CLL uh, as early progression events. These are often patients who have come off of BTK inhibitor therapy who had a very aggressive disease course after stopping ibrutinib, for example. So the pre-therapy features of this group of patients who are sort of primary refractory to venetoclax include some very bulky lymph node disease, generally over, over 10 centimeters at study entry, as well as those patients who are resistant to BTK inhibitors. We have some sense now for the associated genomic changes that can predict uh, this lack of response to venetoclax. Certainly karyotypic complexity, three or more abnormalities, and particularly five or more abnormalities can suggest a patient who might be more resistant. We see loss of a variety of other factors, including CDKN2A and B. 
And then there's some preliminary evidence for the importance of various somatic mutations, and a couple that have popped up are BTG1 mutations and NOTCH1 mutations as possible predictors of, of lack of response to venetoclax. But I want to contrast this population with the late progressors that we see here. And typically when we see late progression events on venetoclax monotherapy, this is progressive CLL. We certainly can see Richter's in other scenarios, but typically it's more of an indolent progression that we can start to see while patients are still on drug. We may have a little more time to decide what we need to do uh, to treat these patients. And the pre-therapy features tend to be patients who came into the study with a lower disease burden, typically adenopathy of less than 10 centimeters. Perhaps these are patients who had had prior chemoimmunotherapy or uh, BTK inhibitor therapy and were sensitive to that and then relapsed or possibly even BTK inhibitor naive patients. And I think we have a, a less clear understanding of what the associated genomic changes are in these, these late progressors. Certainly we know that TP53 aberrations can be uh, predictive of, of a short duration of response with venetoclax, but I still see that more as a prognostic marker because it seems to apply across different types of therapy. So to try to understand the potential mechanisms of venetoclax resistance, we have to dive a little bit into the basic science here to understand the intrinsic pathway of mitochondrial apoptosis. So we know that cells can undergo a variety of different stimuli, including pro-death signals from either uh, the environment or from chemotherapy, for example, itself. Typically, TP53 is important in this initiation of apoptosis and leads to downstream activation of pro-apoptotic factors, in particular activators such as BID and BIM. BIM, in particular, can then go on to activate BACs and BAC. These are the proteins that can homo-oligomerize on the mitochondrial outer membrane, and that leads to mitochondrial outer membrane permeabilization, releasing cytochrome C and initiating apoptotic cell death. Of course, we have multiple different anti-apoptotic proteins that can oppose this process, and we've talked so far about BCL2, but of course we also have BCLXL, MCL1, and others. We know that venetoclax is a highly selective BCL2 inhibitor. And really the way venetoclax works is it displaces the proapoptotic BIM, which is normally bound to BCL2 and CLL. BIM can then go on to interact with BACs and BAC and lead to mitochondrial outer membrane permeabilization, which is the, the um, initiating step of apoptosis. So you can imagine theoretically that there's several different mechanisms that occur uh, in, in venetoclax resistance. So one could be a very fundamental process of actual loss of BACs and BAC, the true effectors of apoptotic uh, death. That actually turns out is quite rare across cancers. Uh, it's something that we can model in, in cell lines, for example, uh, but across different hematologic malignancies and, and solid tumors, that's not something that's been seen uh, commonly in humans. What about loss of TP53 dysfunction? So this is another possibility. So let's talk about that. So in a collaboration with the Australian group, we looked at the patients who were on the phase one first in human trial of venetoclax and tested their, their cells pre-treatment uh, pre in the laboratory and in the, the bottom left, you can see a simple annexin PI assay. This looks at the initiation of apoptosis. In patients in the red who had a detectable deletion of 17P, and patients in the blue who were wild type for 17P. And you can see, based on this apoptosis assay ex vivo, there was no difference in the amount of apoptosis induced, uh, irrespect, you know, regardless of the 17P status. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about an assay that uh, Tony Latai developed at Dana-Farber called BH3 profiling, which is a functional assay that assesses the propensity of cells to undergo apoptosis, as well as their dependencies on different anti-apoptotic proteins. Uh, I'll get into a little more detail on that in a, in a bit, but just to show you some initial data, we looked at BH3 profiling in these patient samples from the venetoclax first in human trial. And across the different assays that we do, we didn't see any differences based on the TP53 status. 
And this was reflected in the in vivo clinical response, uh, at least to the initial response to therapy. So these are the waterfall plots from the phase one study looking at uh, the, the lymphocyte response, lymph node response, and bone marrow response. And the different shades of gray here reflect TP53 mutation status, uh, either that um, neither is, is mutated, uh, TP53 or deletion 17P, uh, both are mutated or uh, there's a mix. But regardless of the TP53 status, the depth of response to uh, venetoclax monotherapy appeared to be equivalent. Although interestingly, the patients who have deletion 17P did have a, a significantly shorter progression-free survival than patients with intact uh, uh, chromosome 17. So I, I do think that the TP53 status still carries prognostic import uh, with venetoclax, but I don't think it's going to give us a, a clue as to the specific resistance mechanism. So I think the biggest development over the last year has been the identification of BCL2 mutations that can actually affect the binding of uh, venetoclax to BCL2. And this has been described by the Australian group who looked at 15 progressors on long-term venetoclax monotherapy. These were patients who had serial samples available throughout the trial. And initially, they detected a BCL2 glycine-101 valine mutation in four of these samples. All these patients had, had CLL-type progression, not Richter's syndrome. And these mutations had not previously been seen uh, with venetoclax in these patients or other patients. This is a mutation in exon 2. Uh, you can see where, where it's located uh, on the slide. So why is this an important mutation? Well, it turns out that this mutation occurs at a very highly conserved residue. It's important because it's facing right into, right into the area where the binding groove is for uh, both BIM and uh, venetoclax. And it does lead to a steric blockade because the valine is a much more bulky group than the glycine, and it impairs the ability of venetoclax to bind to BCL2. Interestingly, after they identified this, the group then went on to look at a variety of different other scenarios, including venetoclax-naive, CLL patients, and a variety of other lymphomas and myeloma. And across the board, they did not detect this mutation in any of these uh, scenarios, suggesting this could potentially be an acquired mutation for resistance. They did some elegant ex vivo work as well, looking at, for example, this competition assay showing that cells that have this glycine-101 valine mutation have a markedly decreased affinity for venetoclax. They estimated it's about 180-fold weaker binding of the drug uh, to BCL2. And again, this is probably through this competition uh, with, with BIM. So, in four of the patients who uh, had this mutation, they had some serial samples, and you can see at, at time zero, none of these patients had the mutation. And gradually over time, they begin to develop at low levels, so very low variant allele fraction, although over time, this, this VAF can actually increase. And it's estimated that the proportion of CLL cells that carry the mutation can be up to 70% in this small cohort of patients, and they do detect both subclonal and clonal mutations in these uh, pre-progression samples. And these were some data shared from Rachel Thiessen and the group uh, at Melbourne, and basically looking at the um, sensitivity of these cells with the BCL2 mutation uh, at the time of relapse. And you can see that the LC50 is much higher, suggesting that these cells really are resistant to venetoclax. And so I think this raises several interesting questions, because this, again, is relatively low variant allele fraction. Not all the CLL cells are involved. So what are the other cell intrinsic mechanisms that may be occurring? Uh, what's the interaction of the microenvironment here? Could that also be protective in terms of other signaling pathways? And, and how do those other mechanisms collaborate with BCL2 mutations? So that brings us to the last potential mechanism here, which is increased dependence on alternative anti-apoptotic proteins. Some initial work had been done by Arnand Kader and his group in, in the Netherlands looking at model systems of lymph nodes uh, that became resistant to venetoclax. And you see in the, uh, in the colored graph here that um, in the top right corner, 
these resistant venetoclax lymph nodes have increased expression of the anti-apoptotic protein BCL-XL, which is in red there. And on Western blot, uh, they show a similar finding uh, that BCL-XL and even MCL-1 protein levels can be increased in these lymph node um, samples that are resistant to venetoclax, and that certainly leads to venetoclax resistance, uh, as seen below. In some recent work published by our group at Dana-Farber, led by Kathy Wu and Roman Guiz, uh, they were able to show that AMP1Q and MCL1 are overexpressed in some venetoclax progressors. This was initially implicated in some cell line data, uh, but then later was tested in, in patient samples, and three of six progressors did have AMP1Q uh, amplification. It was subclonal in, in two of the three patients. And you see at the bottom that when looking by immunohistochemistry, there was also MCL1 overexpression by, by IHC in some of these patient samples from resistant venetoclax patients compared to their pretreatment samples. So a model proposed for this is that uh, at the top part of this model, you can see that MCL1 protein expression can go up. Uh, that can bind some of the, the BIM uh, that's released by venetoclax and thereby inhibit uh, the apoptotic cascade. And at the bottom, you see the role of AMP1K, which can interfere with OXFOS uh, pathways in the mitochondria and further lead to resistance. So a little more detail on the BH3 profiling assay. Again, this can assess the functional dependence of a cell on specific anti-apoptotic proteins. To do this assay, we take uh, cancer cells from, from patients, in this case CLL, that have to be uh, viable cells. We can viably freeze and then thaw the cells. Uh, and then we gently permeabilize the cells with, with digitonin, which allows them to then interact with a variety of different BH3-only peptides. And we put this in a plate and allow the different peptides to interact with the CLL cells. And then we fix the cells and look at cytochrome C release by flow cytometry. And by using different BH3 peptides, this can give us a sense for two things. One, how likely is the cell to undergo apoptosis? This is what we call priming for apoptosis. And two, which specific anti-apoptotic proteins does the cell depend on for its survival? And we use this heat affinity map to help determine that. So for example, MCL1 tends to be uh, relate, related to NOXA, and uh, for example, HRK tends to be related to BCL-XL. So, so by using this pattern of peptides, we can really identify which anti-apoptotic proteins are crucial for the survival of a cell. So we have a limited number of samples that we've been able to analyze using BH3 profiling from the venetoclax first in human trial. I'll highlight a couple here. There's one on the left side where we saw that at the pretreatment sample in blue, this patient was very sensitive at a functional level to uh, venetoclax therapy, but at time of relapse, there was uh, impaired uh, sensitivity. Uh, the patient actually became resistant at the level of the mitochondria uh, to venetoclax. And on the right is a similar story with, with a patient who was resistant to venetoclax. And also at the bottom, you can see that the uh, MS1 NOXA peptides come up. And this actually suggests increased functional dependence on MCL1 in the patient who became resistant to venetoclax. So I would say right now probably these two are the leading mechanisms that I would think would be contributing most to venetoclax resistance, the BCL2 mutations, and the increased dependence on the alternative anti-apoptotic proteins, specifically BCL-XL and MCL1. So what can we do about this? How should we treat our patients who develop venetoclax resistance? This is an open area right now. We don't have a lot of prospective clinical data here, but we certainly have a lot of potential options for our CLL patients. You're hearing a lot at this meeting about BTK and PI3 kinase inhibitors. You're going to hear in a minute from Dr. Kipps about CAR T-cell therapy. There's obviously a variety of other antibody targets that are promising, uh, but since you're going to hear about most of these other things from, from other folks, I'm going to focus on novel BH3 memetics as a strategy to treat patients who become resistant to venetoclax. So I would consider nevitoclax, actually, the precursor to venetoclax, to be novel in the sense that it can target both BCL2 and BCL-XL. 
you know, unfortunately, when this drug was developed, the thrombocytopenia induced by BCL-XL was significant and made, made the uh, company hesitant to further develop this drug, although responses were being seen at relatively lower doses of, of nevitoclax, probably due to the BCL-2 inhibition. But one wonders if this drug had been continued to be developed in CLL, whether it could have been useful as uh, a drug to target patients who become resistant to venetoclax based on BCL-XL uh, upregulation or dependence. Now, it is a little challenging when you have one molecule that targets two proteins in terms of modulating dose. And the other possibility is that if this were further developed in CLL, thrombocytopenia would continue to be a problem and make it very challenging to use nevitoclax. And so uh, probably a, a better approach would be to have a BCL-XL selective inhibitor. So the idea with this would be that you might be able to overcome the toxicity issues by kind of finding the, the right dose but still maintaining efficacy in a patient who's become dependent on BCL-XL. So there's a tool compound, A115, uh, that AbbVie has that they've shown some very nice preclinical data that you see here that this drug can effectively target BCL-XL, displacing BIM uh, from the protein, which can induce apoptosis. But unfortunately, this is not a clinical drug. And so we're awaiting the, the development of a, a clinical BCL-XL inhibitor. But certainly, I think that would be very interesting to explore in venetoclax-resistant patients. Three promising direct inhibitors of MCL1 have recently entered the clinic. You can see molecules from Servier, Amgen, and AstraZeneca here. Uh, we don't have clinical data yet for these drugs, but certainly the preclinical data do look promising. They can certainly directly target MCL1 very effectively. It's interesting as we think about bringing these into patients to, to think about what the toxicity profile might be. Uh, certainly MCL1 is also important for the development of, of stem cells and, and uh, hematopoiesis. Uh, so I think finding the right dose of an MCL1 inhibitor is going to be important. As we think about combining MCL1 inhibitors with BCL2 inhibitors, uh, we also need to be careful, I think, in terms of cytopenias. But hopefully these are, th these are issues that can be worked out through careful clinical trials. Another approach, rather than targeting MCL1 directly, is to indirectly target MCL1. So one way to do that is through cyclin-dependent kinase inhibition. An example of that is a drug called Verusiclib, which is an oral inhibitor of CDK9 and other CDKs. One of the features of MCL1 is that it's a very short half-life protein. So anything that's a transcriptional regulator that's going to impair translation is going to very quickly lead to lower levels of MCL1 protein. And this has certainly been the case when modeled in, in preclinical systems. This drug is orally bioavailable and has been studied in a phase one trial in solid tumors where the favorable safety profile was demonstrated. And we're now working on a phase one study that's open to accrual with uh, patients with relapsed refractory B-cell malignancies with the goal of trying to get this into also a combination setting of verusiclib plus venetoclax to explore, again, the idea of dual blockade of MCL1 and BCL2. So as I kind of look toward the future, I, I think that strategies like the BH3 profiling or other genomic approaches may allow us for individualized therapy of BH3 mimetics. This is a little bit complicated here, but I'll go through it quickly. You can imagine doing some kind of assessment at baseline, and for example, patient one in that top line is clearly going to be sensitive to a BCL2 inhibitor, so it would start with venetoclax. You may occasionally identify a CLL patient who's more dependent on MCL1, for example, or may have dual dependencies, and so you may from the start give them a combination approach. And then you treat the patient for a period of time, and you can reassess with your assay and determine if the dependencies have changed on different anti-apoptotic proteins. And so that first patient, again, who started with venetoclax, maybe now is becoming more dependent on BCL-XL. Maybe you can dial in a low dose of a BCL-XL inhibitor, so you're not inducing too much thrombocytopenia, but you're reestablishing disease control. You may have patients who completely change their dependencies, so patient four, where maybe you're using BCL2 and BCL-XL, now at, at time of progression is dependent only on MCL1, and you may want to switch to an MCL1 inhibitor. So this is an unproven strategy at this point. This, this type of approach will obviously need to be evaluated in prospective clinical trials, but I think it's an interesting way to potentially approach this problem.
So to conclude, venetoclax is certainly highly effective in CLL, yet certainly when used as monotherapy, we're beginning to see resistance mechanisms that are emerging. I would say that TP53 dysfunction is permissive for progression, but in and of itself does not seem to be sufficient to cause resistance. The G101V BCL2 mutation does contribute to resistance in late progressors. I'd caution us about using rates of mutation at this point. Uh, we're talking about 15 patients, so I think this needs to be studied in a much broader population to understand how common this really is. And I do think that increased dependence on other anti-apoptotic proteins, such as BCL-XL and MCL1, also likely contributes in a large proportion of patients who are resistant to venetoclax. Our future studies should really incorporate both functional and genomic assays to help individualize BH3 mimetic therapy based on the anti-apoptotic dependencies. With that, I'd like to acknowledge my colleagues in the CLL Center, especially Jennifer Brown, Kathy Wu, and Tony Latai, my laboratory and our funding sources, and Marianne Anderson, who gave a great talk on this at IWCLL and shared her approach with us there. Thank you very much.